Welcome, everyone. Thanks for being here. My name is Stephen Rossi. I am the high school pastor here at First Baptist. Um, if you guys do not know me, um, I've been here for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, so I'd love to meet you if you don't. Um, but I'm glad to be up here again, glad to be teaching, and honored to be uh, up here. If you guys can't tell, my voice is a little allergy-y uh, this morning, so bear with me if I start to <clears throat> sip my water a little bit more than normal this morning. <clears throat> but we will make it through and, uh, and through Promotion Sunday and the second service too. So um, the great thing about this morning is that I'm not a, uh, a singer and you're here to listen to me, but the great thing this morning is that we are here to open God's Word together. And so um, if you would just join me one more time, I know we've prayed a lot. I know that we've uh, begun this service with worshiping Jesus and praying, but would you just join me one more time as I pray as we start this time? Father, we, we enter into this time recognizing, Lord, that, that you are the one who we get to see this morning. We open up your word in an attempt to look deeper into the heart of who you are, Jesus, what you've called us to, and what we are as your king, as your people in your kingdom. So, Lord, I pray in this time that, that in any way, shape, or form, I would kind of float to the back of the stage and, and your word, your scripture would come to the front, and we would see you so clearly, Jesus. Would you be with us? Would you allow us to see your word in a deeper way? I pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, and so uh, as we are continuing the series, I get the opportunity to continue the Summer of Love series. And so uh, I, I like the kind of hippie vibes that I get with this series so far. I don't know how much longer we're going to do it, but every time we do it, I just feel like we should kind of just look at the Summer of Love. Like, I just, there's something about it I really like. So uh, last two weeks ago, we had Glenn talking about this vertical love, the way that we love God, this, this, this relationship between us and God. And then last week, Pastor Steve uh, preached to us about this idea of love in action. Loving our neighbors, and then the action aspect of that, and what it looks like to do things, not just say that we love, but to do that. And then there's this third week today that we are going to be in where it's, it's loving one another. And it's this really simple dynamic, really simple thought, yet there's this understanding this context of the verse we're going to open today that I'm really excited to unpack and kind of dive into. And so if you would, we got a lot to read today, a lot to head into. So John chapter 13 is where we're going to be opening. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 13. We're going to be starting in verse 34. John chapter 13, verse 34. So it's a little bit different. I'm going to be starting uh, with the end of the verse that we're reading today. We're going to read the last two verses of the entire passage of what we're going to be covering today, uh, and then we'll come back and cover it as well. But this is the main point. Uh, even though I'm starting with this, this is what I want you to walk out of the, the, the room with. I want you to remember these two verses. This scripture is the point of why we're here today. These two verses. John chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I'm going to read that one more time. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There's a part of me, especially since Glenn's gone this week, where I just want to like say, all right, are we good? Is that it? I feel good? Feel good? Love one another? Let's walk out the doors. Maybe, maybe a couple more songs, then we're, we're going to get out of here. But I, 
there's, there's a little bit more to it. And I hope every time, not just someone's teaching up here, but I hope that as, as you see scripture verses like this, when you see two verses, such a small portion of scripture, whether it's on Instagram or, or the internet somewhere, or even up here uh, at church, that we would look with critical eyes, that we would say, hey, where does this verse fall in line? What's the context of this verse? What's happening around before, before after? Who's Jesus talking to? Who's talking so a couple of the questions that I ask when I look at this, even though it's a verse that could stand alone, we could get so much out of it just by reading those two verses and walking out the door, we totally could walk out of here and be very edified. But there's a few questions that I think we all should ask, right? We look at this and we're like, the first thing is, why is this a new command? Why did Jesus say this is a new command when this is the end of his ministry? This is the last supper that this is about to be at. That's a hint. I just gave away something. Don't worry. Uh, this is the last supper. This is the end of his ministry, So why is he telling that loving one another is a new command? He's been talking about love. He's been loving people. He's been showing us love for his entire ministry. The second question is, who's he speaking to? It mentions his disciples, but is there anyone else there? What's the context of what's happening here? Who are they to love? They're supposed to love one another. But again, that would change depending on who's in the room. If we are to model Jesus's love, like these two verses indicate, how is it that he loved? Are we supposed to just take any random thoughts that Jesus had, any verse or remembrance of what, how he loved somebody, and kind of plug that into the way that we're supposed to model? Or is there something more specific about what Jesus is speaking to here in verse 34 and 35? And the last thing is, I kind of already mentioned this, is this a one-off verse? Is this a random statement that stands alone in scripture, or is there more to it? And as I mentioned before, there's, there's a you know, we, we've often heard it called that this is the, the, the scripture is, is the bread of, the, our daily bread, the bread of life, right? And I think more and more in our culture, I, I speak this to our high schoolers a lot because the, the scripture verses that we see more and more uh, in our daily lives are these little, you know, we have these beautiful Bible apps that, that put two verses onto a, a, a social media platform. We get to see, oh, Jesus loves me. Oh, love one another. And we see these things and we get these crumbs from commentaries rather than being able to ingest and fully eat the sustaining bread that God gives us. And so every time we read two verses like this, let us dive a little deeper. Let us go a little bit further into the context, and let us unpack what's happening here. So here's the context. We're going to rewind to John chapter 13, verse 1. So if you guys are in your Bibles, turn a little bit further. John chapter 13, verse 1. We're going to unpack where this is happening, what's happening here, and understand what's going on. In this time in Jerusalem, the city streets are pretty, uh, you could kind of imagine the scene, right? There's, there's the scene unfolding before this moment. You can, un- you can imagine this point in time where the city streets were, were busy. There's hustle and bustle. There's all this stuff going on. And there's this moment where, the, where all of a sudden it starts, the, the, the daylight starts to go away and the hustle and bustle starts to quiet down. And people are kind of, not frantic, but they're trying to get into their house. They're trying to make final preparations. They're trying to finish the preparations for what it is for this day. Because this is a day that everyone is united in one thing. This is a day where people are all doing the same thing if you are Jewish. The nation is united around one moment, around one thing. And it might not be a corporate gathering, but it might be gatherings with families. People are coming over to, to their houses, families coming over, extended families coming over. People are making preparations for the dinner, for the mealtime, for the, the script that they're going to read, for the worship songs that they're going to sing, for the things and customs that are traditional this time. Because this time is Passover. This is the most holy holiday of the Jewish tradition, and they're excited to participate in it. And there's something happening amongst the entire nation of people in this one moment where they're going to prepare for this dinner of Passover. 
And in the midst of it, Passover dinner, they're excited to celebrate, right? This is a celebration and a reminder of all the things that God has done, specifically at Passover, what God has done to get them out of slavery from the land of Egypt. They remember the times that they were slaves, that their, their people were slaves, and how faithful God was in the midst of it. But also what they do at this time, the time of Jesus, is they're anticipating a further Redeemer, They're anticipating a Messiah who's going to come do more than just what happened through the sea of, of, uh, with the land of Egypt and, and escaping there. So they're excited, they're celebrating, and they're anticipating. And this is the scene where they come to. Every house is kind of doing the same thing except for one house. There's a little bit more tension involved in one house. This house has offered up its house uh, to this random group of men. Not random because it seems like there was some sort of interaction between Jesus and probably the house owner. If you look in Luke, uh, the description that we get is that Jesus had made some sort of previous arrangements for the men to go, for his disciples to go uh, set up the, the Passover dinner at this person's house. We don't know who it is. All we know is that Jesus had made the arrangements and he sends uh, Peter and John off before them in separate times. They don't all gather together. They don't walk through the city all together in this big group because at this point in Jesus' ministry, there's a crowd following him. There are massive crowds following him, both for the good and for the bad. There's a, a growing number of people who want to see Jesus, and then there's a growing number of people who want to see Jesus fail or arrested or killed. And so at this moment, his disciples and him enter into the city, not waving banners, not doing huge things. They enter finding a place, finding a home in the upper room where they get to have Passover dinner together. Let's read John chapter, one, John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew things already at this point. This is not a random act. This is not a random Passover dinner where he's just going kind of willy-nilly, all right, let's go celebrate Passover together as disciples. There's something intentional about what's happening here. In the words of John, John's gospel account is really intentional to mention over and over and over again how much Jesus knew he was headed into. Jesus knew who he was, and as we'll see later, he knew that his hour has come. He's walking into this dinner knowing that it will be his last and that these will be some of his last words with his disciples. That's the context for what we see. And we read on in verse 4. So he got up from his meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this is something when uh, our 21st century American lens on this, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've heard this story. Jesus washes feet. Kind of weird, kind of cool. I don't really know how to handle it. Um, but it's, it's interesting. In this context, in this time frame, this story is so unbelievably radical that if you guys heard what I just said, your jaws would be like, oh, what? Because Jesus wouldn't have done this. This is not something that people did. Even the people who were trying to care for people, you wouldn't just stop and wash somebody's feet. Foot washing was something that was for the lowliest of servants. 
Foot washing was a normal thing. It was customary. And for people who were maybe not as wealthy, foot washing was just a normal thing you had to do because they didn't have asphalt and concrete, right? They didn't have nice gold-toed cotton socks and closed-toed shoes. They had sandals and straps, and they were walking through the dirt and the muck and sometimes animal muck that they're walking through the streets, right? They had a lot on their feet, which is one of the reasons why foot washing was not the most exciting job. And that's an understatement. It wasn't just not an exciting job. It was, it was really a job that people didn't look to do. Foot washing is something that even those Jews who had servants, who had the means to have people have as foot washers at their home, if they had a Jew and a Gentile servant, they would give that job to the Gentile because they didn't want to put that sort of uh, shame on somebody in, uh, who was a Jew. That's the way that this, this type of act was viewed back in the day. Now, it's interesting because the the upper room that we're looking at, to have a house with an upper room, to have a building with an upper room, we would assume that this type of homeowner, this person who's offered up his house for the disciples to have this Last Supper in, would have a foot washer. And that's why we kind of unpack some of the things we said about the, 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 I don't even know if I can be as bold to say it was a secret meeting, but it definitely wasn't one that was announced. It almost feels like the, the person whose home it was took away the servants so that there could be full privacy in this upper room. Because if there was an upper room, there would have been servants, but there wasn't in this situation. In fact, it was weird because Jesus, the supper had already started by the time that Jesus did this. And so all of the disciples at this point had not washed their own feet, and all the disciples had not washed, taken the time to sit down and wash anybody else's feet. And so again, one of those questions as we read scripture that we ask the question, why is this? If they normally would have washed feet before they entered, if there normally would have been a servant to do that, why is this happening in the midst of this? What is the purpose of what Jesus is doing? And so we start to understand the culture and context a little bit more, right? Back in the day, the status of this shame culture, this honor and shame culture, people would constantly try to settle themselves on how high they were, how low they were. And you see this in the disciples themselves. They're arguing all the time about who is the most loved, who's the least of them, who's the best of them, who's, who's first and second and third, right? There's this argument among the disciples of what's happening. And so even among this group, Jesus' core 12, in the midst of this room, you can imagine that they weren't eager to wash each other's feet because the moment that one of them washed someone else's feet— they were almost admitting that they were the last in the group, that they would have been the lowest on the totem pole out of the 12. And so instead, you see all of them reclining into the table with dirty feet at the Passover dinner with the Savior of the world sitting next to them. And Jesus, in this type of dinner, a rabbi, an honored person, would sit at the table, and, you, and they'd still be jockeying for position at this point, the disciples. They would, the person sitting next to Jesus on each side would kind of be the, the next most honored, and then so on and so forth, as people sat, and the person furthest away from Jesus would be the most distant from Jesus, not just physically, but also socially. And so you can imagine if the arguments that we see accounted for in Scripture, we would see that that was probably happening around the table, too. And so Jesus, as he pours the water into the basin and and begins to take off his outer garment, which is something servants would do, the thought that potentially was going through every single one of the disciples' minds wasn't, what is he doing? It was, oh, please don't pick me. Please don't pick me. I don't want to be the one. Because if you pick me, everyone will know that I'm the lowest out out of all the twelve. Every one of them was jockeying for position so much that if they get to this point and Jesus picks them, it's solidified. They're the least of them. 
They're the ones who are the lowest out of all 12. And so Jesus, as he grabs it, and everyone's wondering what he's doing, instead of picking someone, instead of picking Judas, who we all know he should have picked, he takes off his garments, ties a towel around his waist, drops to his knees, and begins cleaning the disciples' feet. A task that not even Jewish servants wanted to do. Jesus drops to his knees and becomes number 13 in the room. We read on in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, by the way, isn't it funny that every time we read scripture, Simon's always the one to, to open his big mouth? Gosh, I just love Peter. That's I think so many of us can relate to him. We'll get to that later. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. (laughs) He just told Jesus what he's going to do. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Verse 9, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, almost to change his answer completely, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet, but their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one of them was clean. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done? What I have done for you, he asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You will be blessed if you remember and intellectually know what, it, what I did at this table. You will be blessed if you remember and tell your kids about what I did at this time. No, he said, you will be blessed if you do as I did, lower myself, sacrifice myself, and love one another. See, Jesus wasn't just going along with the status quo of what was happening. Jesus wasn't jockeying for position with the disciples. Jesus wasn't trying to elevate himself like most other teachers of the law were doing at the time, like most other Pharisees and rabbis were doing. Jesus was bringing in and ushering in an upside-down kingdom. He was subverting the cultural understanding of what was the practices of the day because his values were different than what the values of the day were. He has the title, the authority, the honor, and he outserved everyone in the room. Have you guys ever seen the show Undercover Boss? Anyone? Yeah? It's a little bit older now. I don't even know if it, it might still be on. I have no clue. But it's, it's, the, there's, it's one of those interesting shows where uh, the CEO of, of some company, there's some pretty big companies that were on the show, right? Uh, they, they dressed up in, in some, some good disguises. I remember sometimes I saw some disguises where I'm like, you have gray eyebrows, and all of a sudden now you have a black, like, black wig on and stuff. Like, they had to have known that was the CEO. But either way, there was moments where the CEOs would come in, and uh, if they, were, they were usually in executive boardrooms, but instead, in the show, they would start going on to manufacturing lines. They would be custodians. They would be in the trenches of whatever their employees and their company was doing. 
And these CEOs would, would uh, be filmed doing this. And sometimes the show was really cool and, and like inspiring. They'd, they'd kind of be overwhelmed with how hard their workers worked, how good their workers were. They'd give them raises or they'd help them out. And sometimes they'd be overwhelmed with how bad their employees were, right? There'd be these moments where it's like, oh my gosh, you're fired. Like you are, should not have done that. And so this show was really interesting. And there's this really clear parallel, right, between that show and what Jesus is doing. Jesus is in authority, the king of the universe deserves to be worshipped and glorified at every moment, and yet he comes down to the lowliest of jobs and enters into that. And the CEOs deserve, not to, maybe, maybe not deserve, but are used to being in an executive boardroom, doing different type of work, yet they, they lowered themselves to do this thing. The difference is between these two things is Jesus wasn't trying to enter into the, the figurative shoes of the servant so that he could better understand how the servant was doing. He wasn't entering into this moment so that he could maybe improve the lifestyle of the servants. He was entering into this moment to completely flip on its head what it looked like to love one another. To completely flip on its head what it looked like to live with purpose in this world. Jesus, as he did these things, this is one of the things I already mentioned uh, in the Gospel of John, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, have, have a very specific uh, account of things. And John is a little bit different. John's Gospel has a little bit more intentionality in, in certain areas. And one of the things that comes up in the Gospel of John over and over and over again is how much Jesus knew. He says, even in this one, these, these few verses that we've read so far, uh, there's nine times the Greek word for to know or knowing comes up in, in, the, in the verses that we've read so far. And that comes up even more in the, in the Gospel of John and other places. And it's not just an intellectual knowledge. It's not just that Jesus intellectually knew different things, but in, Jesus not only knew things, but he experienced things, and he brought people in to an experience of what it was to be, to be known by him. And so we're going to look at the end, as the second half of this message, I just want to look at three things. And those three things is, what did Jesus know? If, Jesus, if, if John was trying to be so intentional for us to see that Jesus knew uh, so many things and, and was so intentional with all of his words and actions, what is it that Jesus knew? What, was, what must we know in light of that? And then how will the word know, world know? So the first thing, what did Jesus know? We get to look behind the curtains here a little bit and see a glimpse into Jesus' mind and God's mind here. But Jesus knew in the verse, first verse of what we just read, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world. Multiple times in the Gospel of John, uh, spe- specifically in chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, uh, Jesus mentions over and over and over again, my time has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. The hour has n- is coming, Jesus would say. In verse 13, is finally when the hour is at hand. And Jesus knows that the hour is at hand. He knows that his arrest and torture and death was right around the corner. Jesus also knew who he was. He didn't just know that it was a time frame. He didn't just know that he was going soon to the cross. He knew exactly what he was doing, who he was, and why he was going to the cross. In John chapter 10, a few chapters before that, it says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down from my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Now, we can't imagine this kind of love. This kind of love is, is shocking. 
This kind of love isn't bumper sticker love. This kind of love isn't uh, necklace type of love with a cross on it. This kind of love isn't Taylor Swift lyrics kind of love. This kind of love is, is sacrificing. It's painful. There's a price that comes with it. It's costly. Even to the extent where Jesus would wash the feet of the one who would betray him in this moment. The second thing that we want to look at is what must we know? If we see what Jesus knew, we want to see what must we know? As washing his feet, he asked multiple times, he says, you don't understand or know what I will know, what, uh, but, but you will know, he says. In verse 12, he asks, do you understand or know what I have done for you? Jesus' Jesus's concern is that we would know how much he loved us. Jesus' concern for his disciples is that, he, that they would know how much Jesus loved them. And if the context of what he's talking about is this love for one another within this group of believers. So for us in this church, the people in this room, if we don't understand the entirety of God's love for us, if we don't understand the significance of God's love for us, we're going to engage with one another in kind of two extremes, somewhere in the spectrum of being like Peter and being like Judas. In this account, Peter, we've already looked at it a little bit, if you don't fully know how much God loves you, you are going to be similar to what Peter does with the pride that he has even in speaking with Jesus. Now, Peter wasn't prideful to think that he was better than Jesus. In fact, you see over and over again, Peter is trying to be a servant. His intentions are usually good. But what Peter does is he thinks that Jesus should, should be in the same format as what Peter wanted Jesus to do. No, Jesus, you don't serve me. You don't wash my feet. I serve you. And I guess the question for you guys that I would have is how many of us in this room, when we pray to God, are very similar to that? God, would you fix this situation the way that I see fit? God, would you do it this way? God, would you walk with me in this way? Would you, would you just kind of fix this problem? And we walk through our lives very similar to Peter. We don't think that we're better than God. We know that God is so much better than us, so much more powerful than us. But just like Peter, for whatever reason, we think that the God of the universe who has all things planned and all things in his hands should listen to the way that we want him to do it. Just like Peter. And if you don't know how much Jesus loves you, the other side of the spectrum that you could walk into this room with and the way that you interact with each other is like Judas. Judas with the shame that he held, knowing what he was about to do, even though Jesus humbled himself and washed his feet, Judas couldn't accept that kind of love. Judas couldn't pause to accept and understand the fullness of what Jesus was doing because his shame blocked him from understanding what Jesus was doing and how much Jesus loved him. We need to know that we are loved by the king and the creator of the world. All right, the last thing. How will the world know? Turn with me to John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. John chapter 13, verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. I will look for, uh, you will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I think sometimes as a church, we, we settle for imitations of God's love. Not only do we settle for it, but sometimes we offer it as imitations. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to speak ill of this church specifically, although I'm sure that we fall into these categories sometimes too. I'm talking more of a broad C, capital C, the, the church as a whole. Jesus tells us very clearly that everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And yet with that, sometimes we, we offer these imitations of, hey, come to my church. It's a really big church. Come join us. It's really cool. Hey, come to my church. I have, it's, it's amazing worship we have going on. You should see the light show that we do. It's really cool. Hey, come to our church. We have great kids ministry at our church. It's awesome. It's so much fun. Hey, come to our church. It's, we just redid our, our, our lobby out there, and it's a really, really nice place to sit. I actually like the second seat over there on the couch. It's really comfortable, and in between services, it's really nice. They have coffee there, too. It's great. And, and I know, like, those are great things, and I'm not saying anything against those things, but that's not what Jesus said that the people would know him through. They would know, people would know him through our love for one another. Sometimes the imitations are hard to figure out. Like, um, I recently just had, uh, my wife and I just had our second kid, Sophia. She's six months old. And there's this moment um, where I realize that she's a daddy's girl, and I love it. She, like, looks at me with those little eyes, and it's, like, the best thing in the world. And then I kind of realized after, like, that I was just hoping for that, that she's also a mommy's girl. And I was really, like, jealous. And then I started to like realize, no, 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 she is a daddy's girl. Like she's like, she's really looking at me. Like look at the way she looks at me. It's different than anyone else. Like she's really into, like, like she, she knows daddy. Like she's a daddy's girl. I'll give you one guess. When it's nighttime, not naps, and it's the moment where she is cranky and tired and, and ready to actually go to sleep. I'll give you one guess. Who do you think she wants to go to? I'm offended. How dare you? <laughs> There was like one person who said dad. Thank you for that. <laughs> but you're wrong. It's not dad. And it's not just because mom feeds her. It's because there's something about mom for whatever reason where I hold her and I try to imitate mom. I do. I try, I try to hold her right. I, I put the, the scene correctly in the room. I turn the lights off. I got the white noise. I do the things the right way. I put the church the right way. We have the smoke machine. We don't actually have a smoke machine, but we have the, the lights, right? We have everything. People should come here and just experience God's love because we have the situation correct. But just like my daughter, even though I have the situation correct, when I'm holding her and she looks up at me, when normally she would give me the, oh, you're my daddy, and smile, she goes, you're not my mommy, smile, frown. And there's something that I just can't imitate well enough to put her down. I can't do it. And we can try all we want in this room we can try all we want to, to, to bring people in, to show them how good we are at things. We can be like the Fortune 500 companies and, and be impressive with how big we are. We can be like Hollywood and, and put up some really charismatic personalities and, and, and draw people in that way. We can even have good counseling methods and have a really safe place for people. But that are no, those are not the things that Jesus said people would know him through. Jesus said people would know him through our love for one another. 
And not just a random word love, but the love that Jesus displayed when he, the king of the universe, knelt down and served when he shouldn't have had to. Sacrificed everything that he, sh- he deserved in order to love his disciples. It's selfless, it's sacrificing, and it's costly. Francis Schaeffer has this quote, it says, Through the centuries, people have displayed many different symbols intended to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks on the lapels of their coats, hung chains around their necks, and even had special haircuts. But there is a much better sign, a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. Love. And the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark will the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. That's how people will know. They're not going to know because you invite them to some amazing program. And we do have amazing programs here. And I'm not saying we should stop doing that. We should keep doing that. But in the midst of our amazing programs, in the midst of our amazing worship, we cannot let that be the thing that people experience and that's it. We need to love people the way that Jesus loved people. We need to sacrifice the way people sacrifice. And it's a similar message to what Steve preached last week, except last week, the intentionality was to love those outside the church, to love our neighbors. This week, Jesus' message is very clear. This is within the group of disciples. This is within the people who already follow him. We are to love each other. I was joking with some of the pastors this week. I said, when I've been on missions trips, it's really easy for me to share the gospel when I'm overseas. I'm really confident for some reason. Probably because I'll never see them again, right? I'll go share the gospel. I'll go be that crazy guy and talk to people. I'll I'll enter into conversations. But when I'm home, it's a lot harder for me to engage with my neighbor. And I think sometimes it's similar for us in the church to love one another. It's really easy to be aware, okay, they're not a believer. I need to have grace. I can't hold them to the same standard. I need to love them well. But within these walls, we have to love each other well too. And it's hard A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The new command thing is the only question I think we haven't asked or answered. And and simply put, most people believe that when Jesus referred to uh, the new command, it was the type of love in which he loved. Jesus had been sacrificially loving all throughout his ministry, but this was the first moment in which he Sim, sing, signaled to the type of sacrifice that he was really trying to usher in. We ultimately know that moments later on the cross, he gave the ultimate sacrifice and showed that much more of his love. But this is the new command because he is telling people that this is the kind of love. I don't just want you to love each other. I want you to love each other the way I loved you. And so I hope those words sit with us today, and I remember those two verses. Um, we're going to finish up here and invite the band back up, uh, and we're actually going to have a time, it's fitting, as we read through the Last Supper uh, and in this moment, uh, we're going to have a time of communion together. We're going to pass the plates and enjoy a, a time of communion. As I'm finishing up and before I pray, I just want to ask you guys to do one awkward thing with me uh, as we pass the, pl- pass the plates, uh, maybe an act of symbolism as a, as a chance for us as the church to practice some of this. So what I'm going to ask you to do is that if everybody, we don't have time to do both feet, but if you could just untie your left shoe. I'm just kidding. We're not going to wash each other's feet. Um, 
What we're going to do uh, is when we pass the offering plates, if you've never been with us, by the way, um, we, we just pass the, the, the communion plates um, through, through the aisles. And the communion plates have the bread uh, and the juice in them uh, at the same time. And as you pass them, I simply want you to turn, whichever way you're passing, if you have to turn around or walk over, um, instead of just doing it without looking or doing it quickly and just focusing on yourself internally, I, I'd like us to have a little bit more intentionality this morning. I'd like us to pass the plates And look the person left or right in the eyes, not creepily. You don't need to stare them down. But just look them in the eyes, genuinely. And remind them of the love that Jesus showed us in John chapter 13. I I mean that very, let's do it all in the same way. Remind them by simply saying it like this. This is Christ's body broken for you. And this is his blood shed for you. That's all you need to say. This is Christ's body broken for you, and this is Christ's blood shed for you. Would you serve the person next to you their communion today? Would you give them that that act of love as you love one another in this church so that that can begin to permeate and the world will know Jesus because of the way that we love each other? Let's pray. Father, would you begin in our hearts something new? Would you begin in us an act of love that is so much more radical than we want to give? Would you push us in a way that is hard to love the people around us, to love your sons and daughters the way that you have loved us, especially the night of your last supper when you loved your disciples, God? Would you love us in a deep way? Would you show us what it looks like to love one another? And would you lead us everlasting, Lord? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.